Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, October 9, 2016. The share ID for Friday, October 7th, is 9151. That's 9151. This morning, A Vision for You presents What Can We Learn from AA History? Why learn about AA history? Why learn, study, or for that matter, even discuss the history and roots of Alcoholics Anonymous? What difference can it make? How can it affect how we live and work our own individual recovery? It has been said that whenever a civilization or society declines or perishes, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. Perhaps that could be said about aspects of Overeaters Anonymous. The study of the history of AA will show us what it was that worked and resulted in so many men and women who recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. Hopefully, learning about AA's history will not only serve to strengthen our personal recovery in Overeaters Anonymous, but also begin to strengthen Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Joining us today is Lori C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Winnipeg, Canada. Lori is a dedicated messenger to Overeaters Anonymous and has led hundreds of workshops on how to use the Big Book effectively. We appreciate your time today. Welcome to you, Lori. Thank you, Leah. Should I just begin? Please do. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. I'm Laurie. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I appreciate the opportunity for, for carrying this message. Um, I, uh, I find that a study of AA history has uh, really helped me understand, uh, just as Leah said, the, the, the origins. Uh, I mean, OA's origins come from Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, the, uh, the founder of Gamblers Anonymous helped Roseanne um, to uh, to develop uh, uh, OA, he was uh, both an AA and a Gamblers Anonymous, and uh, had some toughness to him. Uh, but she didn't have the original uh, background of AA until later on when she began to study it. Um, and I I did study a lot of the history before I recovered. I, I I've been in the program for. Uh, uh, six or seven years longer than I've been recovered. I've been recovered about uh, 23 years, and I've been in the program about 30 years. Um, and although I studied the history of AA, I didn't understand the relevance of its history to what I wasn't hearing in the rooms of OA. And when I say I wasn't hearing them, I'm not suggesting that it wasn't there, but I sure wasn't hearing them. Um, so I want to talk about specific things that I've learned from the history of AA that have helped me in OA. Uh, there are many things we can talk about the history of, OA, of AA. It's a fascinating, wonderful history. There are many wonderful books written about it. I particularly like um, Bill's own history, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. It, it's a very fine book. And... Um, it, 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 there's a brilliance to it. It gives the history of AA, but as well provides in the history uh, the origins of much of uh, uh, what AA stands for and has been. 
I, I got a lot from uh, a, a book uh, uh, by uh, Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z, uh, Z, Z I, we Canadians say, uh, Not God, A History of AA. Uh, and there are also two major AA publications, Pass It On and Dr. Bob and the, uh, and the old, uh, Good Old Timers, um, which are histories of, uh, of, of the two co-founders of AA. And there are many other histories as well, all of them fascinating and because these guys were pretty fascinating people. What I want to focus on today, I think there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten aspects uh, of the history of AA that I think uh, can help us and that I'm going to talk about. I'll just summarize what, uh, what they are and then I'll go into them in more detail. Um, the first is the concept of the double whammy, the allergy plus the obsession. The uh, second is a spiritual awakening provides sanity. The third is that a self-assessment, confession, and restitution provides a spiritual awakening. Fourth, prayer and meditation pro provide direction for action. Fifth, helping others without hope of reward, property, or prestige keeps you from straying. I think I'm on the sixth now. Carrying the message even without success is the best insurance against the slip. Uh, seven, don't spend too much time on the person who cannot or will not take what you have to give. Uh, eight, to carry the message, the double whammy provides the desperation required. Uh, nine, working the steps are a matter of life and death and the most important thing you can do for yourself and others, but... There are many ways to do the steps. And tenth, there are no rules, but there are strong traditions that emphasize humility and lack of individual control, reward, and prestige. So that's, uh, I, I've tried to put them in a kind of an order, um, both in terms of the origin of them, the history, the chronology, uh, and, uh, and what, what the, the significance of them are. So the first one comes from Dr. William Silkworth, the, the, the little man who loved drunks, they, they called him. He was a doctor um, uh, who, who uh, was in charge of a medical facility uh, that took care of uh, drunks, mostly rich drunks, um, during the Depression. Uh, he, had, he was, as I understand it, a combination neurologist, psychologist, and neurosurgeon, which I guess you could be in, in the early days of, of the sciences. Um, and he treated countless thousands of drunks, uh, 50,000 alcoholics in his lifetime, I gather. Uh, and he had come to a number of conclusions uh, about the nature of an alcoholic and, and ultimately, I, I would say, the nature of an addict. Uh, these conclusions uh, were contrary to the general prevailing medical opinion of the time. He published uh, his concepts in 1933 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, but it, they don't seem to have uh, uh, had much of an influence on anyone else. But when he started to treat Bill Wilson, uh, who uh, the co-founder of AA, who was a hopeless drunk, and uh, met him I guess there were three times that Bill came to the town the hospital uh, where Dr. Silkworth was the uh, chief medical staff, uh, chief of medical staff. Uh, Dr. Silkworth was able to give Bill this very clear picture. 
and it was, and I'll, I'll do it very quickly, I've spoken on this before, that the alcoholic has two problems. And one of them is a body physical problem. Uh, he called it an allergy. It's a word that I rejected for many years because I didn't think of allergies as being the, the generic concept of an ad, abnormal physical reaction um, to a substance. Um, I just thought of an allergy as a rash or hives or something like or cough or uh, an aphylactic shock. And he called it an allergy, and it was this physical thing that was not accepted and has still not been proved for any addiction, including alcohol. That is, it can't be measured uh, uh, in, in, in obvious ways, although it is by now for alcoholics and for drug addicts uh, 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 something that is obvious, um, but not so obvious for, uh, for compulsive eaters. And that is that our bodies, any addict's bodies, develop abnormal reactions when they indulge in the particular substance or the particular behavior that they tend to be, that they are addicted to. And these reactions, these physical reactions, are ones of cravings. Uh, the, the need to have more, the wish, to, not the need, but the, the bodily need, not the wish, the bodily need to have more and more and not to be able to stop once one has started. Very easy to see that in the alcoholic, to see that in the drug addict, the withdrawal that they go to is, is visceral. We, we've seen it in movies. We, uh, some of us probably have experienced it. I, should, I experienced it in a very, very minor way with coffee and the withdrawal from drinking uh, caffeine was an amazingly powerful physical reaction for me. Uh, very hard uh, for food, hard for gamblers, I guess, to see that. Um, but there are eating behaviors and there are gambling behaviors and there are eating, and there are eating substances, foods, or food ingredients, which if you believe your own experience, Create these cravings. Uh, you, you, you might not, it might not be medically verifiable, but it is a concept that makes absolute sense to me and to almost, well, to any compulsive eater I've ever met who is a compulsive overeater uh, or a compulsive eater uh, who fits this definition. And by definition, of course, that's true. Um, but it, I've spoken to thousands of people to whom it makes absolute sense. This hopeless inability to stop even though you want to stop the inability similar to the inability to keep from blinking or to keep your keep from breathing or to keep your heart from pumping uh, there are reflexes in our body that we cannot control we might have momentary control over how uh, over keeping our eyes open or we, we might be able to hold our breath even for a very long time four or five minutes some some people i think that's the record but i can't do it for more than 30 seconds to a minute um, but ultimately, our body says, stop this. I'm, I'm going on with this. And I've experienced that with food. I've hunkered over tubs of ice cream, not wanting to eat it in my mind, saying, I've got to stop. I've got to stop. And the, the, the spoon keeps coming into my mouth. And I keep saying, this will be the last bite. And it's not. And it never has been. I've never, I, although I have been absolutely full no, I, that's, I, I, I don't even know how to put it. I know that I've had too much. I've never been full. There's always more. And that 
it took me seven years to accept in this program was a physical reality for me. It, it isn't something that is measurable uh, because different foods for different people, different eating behaviors for different people. But for me, it's viscerally absolutely true that there are occasions when I've ingested something, indulged in an eating behavior, indulged in the food, where once I start, I cannot stop. And that truth is something that Dr. Silkworth first identified with alcoholics. We now take that for granted. We now understand for alcoholics, for drug addicts, one drink is too many, and then the next one will be a thousand are, are not enough. Uh, because once you start, you can't stop. So, Dr. Silkworth identified that, called it an allergy because it was a uh, an abnormal physical reaction because not everyone experiences that. Many people in this world get full and don't want to eat anymore. Many people in this world, and I'm one of them, uh, can drink a bit of alcohol and get to a point where they don't want anymore. It really doesn't make them feel very good. Something's going on in my body when it comes to food, and something goes on in the body of the alcoholic when it comes to alcohol. Something goes on in the body of the drug addict when it comes to specific drugs. Um, that doesn't happen to everyone. And because of that, uh, uh, because it's not absolutely medically verifiable, uh, it was very hard for Dr. Silkworth to have anyone accept it. But once Bill accepted that, then the real problem became clear to him as it was to Dr. Silkworth. The real problem is not that we have this allergy, this abnormal reaction. It is that we cannot stop ourselves from returning to it, even though we know that it's bad for us, even though we know that once we start, we can't stop. We can't stop from starting. And that is the reality for any addict. Any sane person, knowing that a particular substance is bad for him or her, would simply not indulge in that substance. Sane people, people who are allergic to shrimp, people who are allergic to peanuts, they just don't have any. If you, if you once had a bad drug reaction and you don't want to have that again, you wouldn't take it again. But the addict continues to find excuses for going back. And those excuses can range from uh, the complete denial of, well, this time it won't hurt me, uh, to the emotional ones of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so lonely, I'm so depressed, I'm not worth anything, I might as well die, uh, to the emotional ones that I'm so happy, I need to celebrate, I can't celebrate without feeling the high that I get from X, um, to the social situations, I'm here, everyone else is doing this, why can't I, uh, to, uh, for food for me, they made it especially for me, or it's organic so I can have it, or it's natural so I can have it, um, to uh, the, the, the ridiculous, uh, I, well, it's very common, I've been away from it for X number of seconds, weeks, years, so now it'll be different. And, and for us in food, I mean, it's, it's even more significant, but I think it was like that for alcoholics when, when, uh, before Alcoholics Anonymous was uh, formed, was the notion that you can do, do it in moderation, that there's no problem if it's done in moderation. Since other people can have it in moderation, why can't you? And that's, of course, every diet and nutritionist and doctor uh, magazine who ever writes about this, almost everyone, 
um, they, they say, you know, once, once, you, once you've lost your weight or gained your weight or whatever, you can now eat in moderation. Or, or you know, if people with, with the uh, kind of eating problems where they undereat are told you must eat everything. And sometimes they can't eat everything. Sometimes there's some, some substances, some foods they can't eat because once they start, they can't stop. And that's one of the reasons they don't eat anything. Um, so this whole concept of, on the one hand, we have this allergy, this abnormal reaction that once we start, we can't stop. And on the other, we have what Dr. Silkworth uh, called an obsession, uh, an idea that takes control of the mind and blots out and pushes out any other ideas. And that idea is, I will have this. And I've described it uh, often as uh, one word. It's just the, come on, just yeah, have some. And it's sort of this third or fourth or fifth or sixth level of the mind that gives us permission using whatever excuse might be available or might persuade us at that moment. And, and that excuse is very often emotional. Many of us in OA will talk about emotional binging, emotional eating. And of course it's powerful. And it's powerful for all kinds of other addicts as well. When you're feeling crummy, when things are going against you, when bad things are happening, you turn to something that gives you a momentary feeling of, of satisfaction that, ah, I'm home, that the allergy gives us when, it's, when we get our first of whatever. Uh, for me, I, I, I know what it is to feel home when I eat ice cream or when I eat something else, uh, uh, buttered popcorn or something like that. I, I feel at home. I haven't had that feeling for a very long time, thank God, but, but you know what I mean. I hope you do. Um, so the emotional, the obsession, the idea can, take, uh, can be obvious, but sometimes it is stupid and it is just insane. It is just everyone else is having one. Why can't I? It is, well, I've been sober. I've been uh, abstinent for, uh, you know, uh, five minutes. I, I didn't eat the bun at supper time uh, so I can have the cake uh, as dessert. You know, that, that kind of stupidity. So the first concept, and probably the most important, and probably the one that we don't hear often enough in OA, is this concept of the double whammy. I can't stop once I've started, and I can't start. I, I can't stop from starting. It's a vicious circle. If you can't stop from uh, stop once you've started, and you can't stop from starting, even if you've been away from a while, your mind will always persuade you to go back. You're in a vicious circle from which you cannot get out, and that is the double whammy. And that is absolutely. Oh, it proved for me to be absolutely essential to understand why I had to be abstinent and what abstinence meant and how I could define my abstinence, how I, how I could identify what I had to eliminate from my eating uh, uh, and what uh, eating behaviors I had to eliminate in order to keep from having this feeling, this body taking over and saying more, more, more. I'll get back to that because to carry the message, this concept of the double whammy provides the desperation required. That's another issue. But the first issue is just... Does it make sense to me? Yes. Am, can I do anything on my own? No, I can't. Because once I start, I can't stop, and I cannot stop from starting. And since I cannot stop from starting, I have to go back to what it is that keeps me in, th in thrall, uh, then I'm doomed, absolutely doomed. The next piece of AA history that is absolutely essential and, and, and was essential in the history of AA as well, 
is, uh, comes from Dr. Carl Jung, the great psycho- psychoanalyst based in, in Zurich, who uh, uh, provide uh, uh, some form, there are some, some discussion and dispute as to how much, but some inspiration uh, uh, and, and desperation to a man named Roland Hazard, a uh, wealthy uh, person who went to Zurich, uh, was psychoanalyzed by Dr. Jung, disputed as to how long he was a psychoanalyst, but who thought that by the time he finished with Dr. Jung, he was cured. And within days of leaving uh, Zurich, he went back on the bottle and uh, went back to his alcoholism, uh, went back to his binging. He went back to see Dr. Silkworth, and this is found in the big book. Uh, by the way, Dr., uh, Dr. Silkworth's story is found in uh, the doctor's opinion and Bill's story and more about alcoholism, and there, and there is a solution, uh, chapters in the big book. Uh, Dr. Jung's story is, is found uh, in there, there is a solution. Uh, so he went back to see uh, Dr. Jung. Roland's story is found in there is a solution. He went back to see Dr. Jung, and Dr. Jung said, you're absolutely hopeless. I can't do anything with you. And uh, Roland said, is there no hope for me? And Dr. Jung said, yeah, well, in the past, there are historical incidents where people like you, alcoholics like you, have stopped drinking. And uh, they are sudden spiritual conversions. Their whole being becomes reorganized. And uh, I've been trying to do that with you. I'm I'm very successful in doing that with other patients, but I've never been successful with an alcoholic. But that is your solution, a spiritual awakening. Well, he called it a spiritual experience. A sudden spiritual revelation is the only hope that you can have, and I have no idea how you can get it. And this concept of the spiritual experience, and it became uh, later on within AA and, and, then, and thus within OA, um, it became a sudden spiritual um, awakening. Um, this concept... Uh, was the hope that step two provides us, this whole sense that we are capable through finding a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, of getting rid of the obsession that condemns us to keep going back. We can never get rid of the physical part, but we can get rid of the obsession. We can get rid of that, come on, that somehow persuades us using all kinds of excuses that make sense to us in the moment. Uh, we can get rid of that. We can get rid of those excuses, and we can get the sanity that we need to be able to say, oh, I'm allergic to this stuff. Oh, I can't do this. This Other people can, but I can't. Um, you know, if I didn't have any legs, I couldn't walk the same as people who have legs. And therefore, I have to remind myself, I don't have any legs. I, I, I need to wear glasses to see or to read. Well, I'm not going to pretend that I don't. And that sanity that seems so obvious to normal people is not obvious to us. It isn't there for us when it comes to our particular addiction. But a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, provides, somehow seems to provide that sanity that we need. And that's what Roland learned from Carl Jung. And he said to Carl Jung, uh, I'm the deacon of my church. And Jung said, that's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about a deep spiritual reorganization of yourself, where your whole motive and sense of being has changed. So Roland went back to the United States after seeing Dr. Jung, and he found the Oxford groups. And the Oxford groups were 
groups of people who were based on, on the teachings of Frank Buckman, who had um, developed this concept in Oxford, England. He, he hadn't studied Oxford University, but he, he had developed the concept uh, while, while thinking in Oxford. Uh, he, had le- he was a Presbyterian minister who had left his congregation in Pennsylvania over a tremendous rift. And uh, he, had, he had been very angry at them. They didn't want to do what he wanted them to do. And he left them he, in, in a very ill temper. He went to Oxford to study, to think, to reflect. And he began to realize that he had harmed his congregation because he had lost his connection with his higher power, with, with, uh, with Christ. And having lost that connection, he was in effect, taking it out on the congregation. But really, he's the one. He was the one who had lost his passion. He wrote to his congregation a letter of apology. And he began to redevelop his connection with his higher power. Uh, and he had a spiritual experience. It, the passion came back to him. He began to uh, sort of analyze what had happened. What had happened was he had made a self-assessment, he had made a confession, and he had apologized for his actions. And those aspects of what he had done became the foundation of developing a spiritual experience. He carried this message forward, um, and and a group of people began to gather around him who named themselves the Oxford Groups uh, uh, after the place where they first sort of began to gather, and they developed this concept of getting honest with yourself, getting honest with another human being, uh, making up for the wrongs you've done, and then they developed two more concepts, prayer and meditation for guidance, and helping others without hope of reward, property, or prestige. And those concepts, the self-assessment, confession, and restitution that provide the spiritual awakening, Uh, the prayer and the meditation that provide you the direction for action, and helping others without hope of reward, property, or prestige that keep you in the here and now. Uh, Those concepts were from the Oxford groups. Now, Roland carried his message to a man named Ebby Thatcher. Ebby Thatcher had been a childhood friend of Bill Wilson's. Ebby Thatcher and Bill had been drunks uh, together, had drunk together for many years, and uh, Bill is reported to have said that if I ever get as bad as Ebby, I'll have to stop drinking. Well, Bill was, was pretty bad by the time Ebby got hold of him. Excuse me. Um, and um, uh, Roland uh, uh, caught Ebby at a moment when Ebby was about to be sentenced uh, for having, uh, well, having, been in a, uh, having driven his car right through the, uh, the uh, side uh, wall of a neighboring cottage in Vermont, Dorset, East Dorset, Vermont, um, uh, and getting out of the car, uh, he end, ended up in the kitchen of the very surprised person who was in the kitchen, and he got out of the car and asked for a cup of coffee. He was drunk out of his mind, and he was about to be sentenced to, uh, uh, or, or conf- committed to a, men- a mental institution uh, because he was so hopelessly alcoholic. And Roland was able to uh, uh, say to the judge because Roland found the Oxford groups and did what the Oxford groups said and had developed a spiritual uh, experience and had stopped drinking. And Roland was able to persuade the judge to put Ebby in his care uh, so that he might be able to try these spiritual principles 
uh, with Ebby. So Ebby did what Roland told him to do and what Dr. Jung had said he needed and what the Oxford group said was the, was the path to what he needed. He did a self-assessment. He did a, did a confession. He made restitution. He started to be guided by prayer and meditation. And he realized he had to help others without hope of reward, property, or prestige. And he thought of Bill. And he phoned Bill. And he said, can I talk to you? Well, Ebby then carried the message to Bill. Now, Bill had, at that time, his understanding of the hopelessness of his particular condition from Dr. Silkworth, this double whammy, this allergy and the obsession. Ebby was able to tell him about Roland's conversations with Carl Jung that gave the hope of a spiritual experience to provide sanity. And then Ebby told him how the Oxford groups had given him the tools for finding that spiritual experience that gave him the sanity, the self-assessment, the confession, the restitution, the prayer and meditation, and helping others without hope of reward, property, or prestige. And those three concepts that the Oxford groups uh, provided, uh, and I, I, you know, the Oxford groups had, they were actually sort of five steps, but self-assessment, confession, and restitution are, are three aspects of it, but they're all one, and they're what I, would, what I think the big book describes as the inventory process, um, even though the word inventory is only used in step four and, 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 and in step ten. But I think the inventory process that the big book describes is this self-assessment, confession, and restitution, which are steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Um, so Bill was the first person to have within him the complete understanding of the problem, this double whammy, which Dr. Jung had no idea of, only got that from Dr. Silkworth. And then the concept of the hope and the power of a spiritual experience, which Dr. Jung provided to Roland, who provided it to Ebby, who provided it to Bill. And then this concept of making the self-assessment, uh, making confession uh, to another human being, making restitution, amends, um, finding uh, a direction uh, through prayer and meditation and helping others, these, these concepts of the Oxford groups from the Oxford groups, which, had, which uh, had been given to Roland, which had been given to Ebby, which had been given to Bill. And altogether, he saw that this was a system by which any addict could uh, rise out of his or her own despair into not just hope, but a whole method of caring for others and helping others with the same problem. Now, that's in the first, you know, that's the, that's the founding of AA. At that, well, it's almost the founding of AA. At that moment, Bill recovered, and he had this spiritual experience, and then he went back to the town's hospital, uh, uh, drunk out of his mind, but uh, holding a bottle of beer and saying to Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth, I think I've got something. And Dr. Silkworth said, yeah, you do, you, you do my boy, and he puts him in, and, he, and Bill is sober for three or four uh, days he's, he's in the is in the town's hospital. He does what Ebby has told him he has to do: the self-assessment, the confession, the restitution. He, uh, uh, the restitution, in the sense of he's getting better for Bill. At least he's halfway there, and he has this sudden white light, and he's got the, the the wind of the mountain coming through him, and he he sees a god, 
and he calls Dr. Silkworth in. He says, am I nuts? And Dr. Silkworth could easily have said, yes, you have the heebie-jeebies, the delirium tremens, um, but he didn't. He said, anything is better than what you had. Grab onto it. And so at that moment, that's not the beginning of the history of AA, but that is the beginning of the beginning of the history of AA because Bill at that moment had the problem from Dr. Silkworth, the solution from Dr. Jung, and the steps to the solution from the Oxford groups. Now, Bill started to carry the message. He knew he had to, and he did for six months. He would go to the uh, Bowery. He would go to the mission. <coughs> excuse me. He would uh, comb the streets for alcoholics. He would take them home, and he would talk and talk and talk to them. Uh, uh, Lois, who was the only person who was working at the time, uh, earning money for the family, was, uh, Bill wasn't, would come home from work and would wash the dishes and empty the ashtrays and uh, make the meals, and Bill would talk and talk and talk. And after six months, the results were horrendous, nil. No one had recovered. No one had taken what Bill had wanted to give them. No one in any way, shape, or form had recovered, and not only that, there was a lot of damage done. Uh, someone, uh, one guy attacked Lois uh, with a butcher knife. Uh, one guy stole uh, Lois's um, fur coat, the only valuable possession she had. Uh, one of those two also committed suicide in their home. It was a horrible experience. And Lois and Bill were talking one night after six months of this. And Bill said, I haven't been able to keep one alcoholic sober. And Lois said, yes, you have. You've kept yourself sober. And, and that moment of realization that Lois gave to Bill was the power of realizing that even if Bill didn't succeed with one person, he had kept himself sober by trying to help others. So carrying the message, even without success, is the best insurance against the slip. And that's what Bill realized at that moment when, when Lois pointed that out. Now, the other thing he be, uh, well, let me, I'm not sure the order to put this in, but I'll tell you the next thing that happens is that Bill goes to see Dr. Silkworth. And he says, uh, I haven't been at all successful. I don't know what to do. And Dr. Silkworth, uh, by the way, the, the reference for uh, the, the Oxford, I should give the references for this thing. For the Oxford groups, you will find that, I think I told you, in, in uh, There is a Solution. Uh, you'll also find that in the various histories of, of, uh, of AA, the importance of the Oxford groups. And you'll find that in the, in the introduction to the uh, second edition of the, uh, of the big book. Uh, Bill didn't mention the Oxford groups in the first edition because there was a tremendous controversy at the time that the, that the first edition was printed. Um, uh, Dr. Buckman, Frank Buckman, uh, had been uh, quoted as uh, giving support to Hitler, and that put the Oxford groups in, 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 bad, uh, in a bad light. So uh, Bill didn't want to be controversial and give um, uh, credit to the Oxford groups at that time. Um, there's some issues to whether Dr. Buckman actually said that or what he said, but whether he said that or not, uh, certainly um, uh, the Oxford groups became moral rearmament, and they be actually became quite political. But uh, Bill gave them uh, credit in, in, their, uh, in the second edition. Um, and the story about Lois and Bill, and Lois is saying, yes, you've kept yourself.
Quicksilver. I have heard from a number of sources. I've never been able to find it in writing. If anyone has ever done that, I'd very much appreciate being told about that. Um, but um, uh, Lois told that to Joe and Charlie, the great uh, AA speakers, and also told that to an OA friend of mine who met her before she died. And I, I believe it. It's not. It's actually not in her uh, in her autobiography. Uh, Lois remembers, but it's. I believe that it happened. Um, and then Bill goes back to Dr. Silkworth, and and this you'll find in AA Comes of Age, and you'll find it also in uh, three talks to medical societies by Bill, and in various talks that Bill gave as well. Goes back to see Dr. Silkworth, and he says, I haven't been able to carry the message to anyone. I haven't been able to get any any anyone else sober. And Dr. Silkworth says, That's because you haven't been carrying the message right. He, and I'm paraphrasing this. But he said, remember that I gave you the reality of the double whammy right at the beginning. I gave you a medical uh, explanation of your problem that put you in complete despair. And you've been reading a book by William James, The, the Varieties of Religious Experience, which, uh, which Abby had given to Bill in the town's hospital, actually, um, which describes all kinds of people who had sudden and, and not so sudden spiritual experiences, and there was a theme in in many of those stories that Doctor that William James had written about, that these people were in the midst of despair, the midst of hopelessness, and out of that hopelessness, that sense of I can't do anything myself, help me, help me, they found a higher power, they found a god, they had a religious or a spiritual experience. Dr. Silkwood said, it is from that kind of despair that you were willing to embrace what the what Ebby Thatcher was bringing to you, this notion of a spiritual awakening, this notion of having to go through a self-assessment, a confession, restitution, doing prayer and meditation, helping others without hope of reward. People won't listen to what you have to offer them unless they feel the same desperation that you have. And if you look at the way Ebby brought Bill the message, um, you know, Bill offers Ebby a drink, and Ebby says, I'm not drinking, and Bill says, uh, what's, what's this all about? And Ebby says, I've got religion, and he talks about the Oxford group. What Bill had not really realized, and, and I'm, not, I'm not even sure that, that, that Bill, it was ever pointed out to Bill, but as Bill describes it, uh, Bill knew Ebby's history uh, from his own experience from childhood. So Bill knew that Ebby and he were the same. Bill knew that he had the double whammy. Bill assumed and knew that, uh, that Ebby had the double whammy, and Bill didn't have to have Ebby prove his point to him or prove that he himself was the same as Bill was. But when Bill was talking to all these other alcoholics whom he took to his home, uh, Bill was just talking to them about this religious spiritual experience that he had. He was not talking about the depth of despair that he had gone through. He was not giving any of this double whammy story, the Dr. Silk uh, story, explanation that Dr. Silkworth had provided. And therefore, he wasn't getting these drunks desperate enough, realizing that if they're like Bill, nothing will help them other than a spiritual experience, which had to be done by all these amazingly crazy things that Bill was talking about, this self-assessment, confession, restitution. Um, and that's what Dr. Silkworth essentially said to Bill. You've got to lay it on them thick. You've got to really uh, explain to them why you cannot, why uh, if they're like you, they cannot recover on their own. There's no way that they can recover on their own. And then they'll accept the message of hope that you give them through working these methods of the Oxford Group to give them.
Well, uh, that then gave rise to this incredible story uh, that is described in uh, A Vision for You. It's described in uh, uh, Dr. Bob's uh, story, uh, uh, in the first story in the big book, uh, described in A Comes of Age, described all the time, because it's just one of those great stories of Lois and Akron, uh, Bill in Akron, Ohio, on a business deal that uh, went sour, alone in the Mayflower Hotel, uh, looking at the bar, having been sober for six months, thinking, well, he could have a ginger ale, he's really lonely, he doesn't, he's, dis- he's despondent. Um, well, he could have a ginger ale, well, he could even have a few drinks, he, he's been sober for six months, and suddenly the alarm bells ring, he phones, uh, he realizes he needs to carry the message to another alcoholic, just as he had learned from from his experience with Lois. If If he's not, if he has to keep from drinking, he has to find another alcoholic to tell his story to, regardless of whether that other alcoholic will ca- will hear the message. And through a wonderful series of uh, coincidences to some, to me, but not to others, uh, non-coincidences to others, he found uh, uh, Dr. Bob Smith. Um, and he found it by saying, and he found Dr. Bob, and he met with Dr. Bob, and basically, he said, I need to tell you my story. I need to tell you why I am an alcoholic and, why, and how I recovered from alcoholism. And he made no judgments about Dr. Bob. He didn't ask Dr. Bob. He didn't say to Dr. Bob, you're like me, even though he had been told that Dr. Bob, who had embraced the Oxford groups already, had not been able to find a spiritual experience that relieved him of his alcoholism. So here, here's this, this great moment where Bill had to give Dr. Bob the message of the double whammy before Dr. Bob would embrace the spiritual concepts, would actually do the spiritual concepts that he embraced already. He had embraced them already. He was a member of the Oxford groups. He had tried to get sober for a year and a half. He had tried all those things, but he never stopped the drinking, and he never understood why he couldn't stop drinking. So having understood that, he was now in a position to do what he had to do. And uh, and that wonderful uh, message, that desperation that Bill had, um, that ca- carried him to Dr. Bob, and the desperation that Dr. Bob felt that finally allowed him to get sober, was marks the beginning of AA. That's, it's the moment that Dr. Bob became sober, um, and, and kept his sobriety was the moment at which AA uh, is, is marked as beginning as a fellowship because it's not getting sober, it's helping another person get sober that is the fellowship of AA. That's what AA exists for, that's what OA exists for. So the, that, that concept of the double whammy that provided the desperation required was proved, Dr. Silkworth expressed it to Bill, and it was proved the moment Bill tried it for the first time when he talked to Dr. Bob. So that's a significant moment. Then comes the history of Dr. Bob and Bill trying to carry the message to others, and Bill's learning methods of carrying the message, and Dr. Bob's learning methods of carrying the message. that gave them another concept that's found in the big book in the chapter working with others. And that is, don't spend too much time 
on the person who cannot or will not take what you have to give. And that's expressed in a couple of different ways. First of all, you look at, I mean, that's, that, that is almost exactly the wording that's used in the big book. Um, Bill had six months of carrying the message to people and realized that it, it, it mattered less whether they got the message than the fact that he was carrying the message. The other is that helping people too much sometimes is bad for them. This concept of enabling is sometimes bad. Uh, Dr. Bob is quoted by uh, Sister Ignatia in a talk that she, in a reminiscence she once gave that's available as a recording. As uh, I mean, he gave himself. He helped 5,000 alcoholics in the 12 or 13 years that he before he died, between the time he got sober and before he died. Um, and um, but there were times that he would say to Sister Ignatia at the hospital, uh, "Kick this guy out. He doesn't really want it. He's just in for the." Uh, for the food or he's in for the, for the comfort. And this concept of the toughness of not spending too much time on the person who cannot or will not take what you have to give is directly um, related to this concept of absolute despair, um, uh, which, which is a double whammy. The more you help someone, the big book says, and you'll find this at, discussed at length in, in working with others, the more they become dependent upon you, the less they'll find dependence upon God, the less they will find themselves trying to, uh, trying to get this spiritual experience. If they can rely on you for food, if they can rely on you for housing, if they can rely on you for taking care of them and helping them, um, and they're not serious about it, but they just want what you can give them, they're taking from you, they're dependent on you, they will never realize how desperate they are. They will never have the opportunity to do the crazy things that are required by the, the tools that the, um, that the Oxford group provided, a self-assessment, confession, and restitution. And I think this is probably, in OA, our biggest problem. Uh, well, I, we have probably have many, but I think we're too nice. Um, and I don't think there's, there's any reason not to be nice in, in a way, but too nice there's a problem with. Um, polite, loving, accepting, and all that. But as one of my mentors in a way has said, and well, he's quoted someone else, but he, he doesn't know who he quoted from, but uh, it, it says, uh, honesty without compassion is very cruel, but compassion without honesty kills. And I, I, I've experienced this many times in my own program, in my own way of dealing with people, and I experienced it personally when I was relapsing over a period of two or three years where people were so nice to me and so loving and, you know, how are you, Laurie? I'd say, I'm fine. Uh, good, love to see you, keep coming back, it works if you work it and bring a lot of love, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was uh, suffering, I was uh, gaining weight, I was talking and jabbering at meetings, um, but the shyest person in the room one day came up to me and challenged me, how are you, Lori? I said, fine, I mean really, she said. And she told me she had, uh, she had prayed for three weeks before she was able to say that. She was such a shy person. So, and still is a shy person. We're very good friends. Um, but that, that confronting of me, that honesty, that love that she had to take a risk of saying to me, in effect, as nicely as she could, what the hell are you doing here? Are you walking the walk or just talking the talk? That, that, just that, it wasn't even a nudge. It was a direct confrontation, a direct intervention done with love and compassion, but done with honesty. 
that saved my life. Without that, I would never have found the recovery uh, that that I, I I have found over the last 23 years. And I think that sense of not letting people become dependent upon you and not enabling them is something that we, we miss. And part of that in a way, and if I can just speak about this just for a few minutes, <clears throat> part of that is um, that many of us, in my experience, are, are damaged people, uh, you know, uh, whereas uh, a lot of addictions are dramatic and, uh, and a lot of um, the substances that people are addicted to uh, give rise to uh, exhilaration, adrenaline, and are stimulants, and, uh, and, and so that people who, who are in their addiction go out and do bad things. Many of us are, are closeted in our addiction. We, 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 we become isolated. Uh, we have become victimized. Uh, partly, sometimes the victimization creates the isolation and the and the um, the compulsive eating that we engage in, and sometimes we are victimized as a result of the compulsive eating. But we're loners, we're victims, um, um, and we don't understand how we may have hurt others. We certainly do understand how others have hurt us. So we come in as wounded people, many of us, and and we 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 need love and we need compassion and we need understanding, and. And, and OA provides that in a way that probably uh, uh, some of the other fellowships don't provide. They sometimes are kind of can be rude and rough and, and, and all that. But we miss the other side of that, and that is the need to be honest uh, as well and the need to say to people, why are you here? What can we do for you? What is going on with you? How can I help you? You seem to be in trouble. There are issues. Why are you gaining weight? Uh, you know, in the nicest and the loving way. I would never do that in any bad way or confrontational way or controlling way. I would pray and meditate before I would say anything. I, mean, I, I do that before I say anything because I, I do do it. Um, but uh, I, I think it's important to remember that. So don't you, you, you don't spend too much time with a person who cannot or will not take what you have to give and be honest. Um, the next I think I've discussed eight, nine up to now, uh, ten up to now, and then the next two are over a period of years that have been developed. Um, and let me preface uh, the the eleventh one with this uh, concept. Not the eleventh, uh, the ninth one with this. With this, I work the steps the big book way. Put another way, I work the steps the way I've been taught to do the big book, and. I know from having uh, participated in that wonderful uh, face-to-face vision for you uh, convention um, that at least two other big book thumpers who carry the message of the big book uh, in workshops, just as I do, um, they follow the big book exactly according to them, and they don't follow it the way I do. And neither of them follows it the way the other one does. Uh, We all have variations of how we use the big book. Um, so I have many uh, friends in the program who are big book thumpers who work the steps slightly differently from the way I do. I also have many friends and mentors in this uh, in, in OA who don't work the steps the big book way at all but have recovered and have a spirituality that, frankly, I envy at times. They do it differently. Um, and, and when I look at what we all have in common, uh, it, it is uh, just a few things. One is that it is life and death. That this is absolutely, I mean, that's the first thing right off the bat. We treat our addiction as life and death, as serious as drug addiction, as serious as alcohol addiction, as serious as gambling, as serious as any other addiction. 
and as a, and then we work the steps however we work them with absolute earnestness and as quickly and as powerfully as we can and we don't stint on the amount of time and energy we place on that we we do that and the third thing that we have in common is we continue to work these steps in some way shape or form we continue to examine our lives to con- uh, to uh, admit them to our faults to another human being and to make restitution however we can we continue to pray and meditate and we continue to help others without uh, reward, property, or prestige, and that helping others without hope of reward, property, and prestige, that, that fourth aspect is we work our asses off helping others. We do whatever we can to help others, and we don't um, stint on that in any way, shape, or form. So those, those sort of four things that we have in common, I, I, I boil down to, Working the steps are a matter of life and death, the most important thing you can do for yourself and for others. And how you do the steps is less important than that you do the steps. And that we get, I think, from the first 100 AAers who devoted themselves in ways that had not been tried before to helping others and and give, give rise to that, those paragraphs in the, in the big book. It may mean staying up all night and going to the hospital and going to prisons and bailing people out of jail and, uh, you know, and, and, and administering injections and things of that sort, things that seem quite foreign to us in OA, but are things that the first 100 did. did. And, and although I've never administered injections, I don't think that's as, as easily done these days. Um, I certainly have visited hospitals, and, uh, and I, I've certainly uh, been up in the middle of the night. Um, hey, for me, this has been middle of the night. I'm, I'm earlier than you guys are in, on the East Coast. Um, and well, it's not quite the middle of the night, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, we, we just work hard. And, and the other thing is that there are many ways of doing the steps. Uh, simply, I mean, the proof of this is that there used to be six steps, and, and Bill created 12, uh, that the step four that is described in the big book is not the way the, that step four was done in, um, in, um, uh, in Akron, Ohio, in Cleveland, Ohio, and probably not in, in New York. They're, they're, from the beginning, there have been many different ways of doing step four, uh, the step fives vary, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, if you read a description in, in uh, I've forgotten the name of the story, but the story of the Chicago guy who brought AA to Chicago, Dr. Bob's method of doing step five was to spend two or three hours accusing the person of all the horrible things he had done and the person saying, yes, 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 I'm like that, whereas the description of the big book is, is, is different. Um, and amends vary so much. Uh, so there are many different ways of doing this step. And, 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 and so for me, you know, the big book way of doing the steps is, is really important. And I think it's important in a way because it provides the background for all the things I've just talked about, this double whammy, this uh, explaining why we have to abstain and explaining, uh, helping us, give us, giving us the tools for what we have to abstain from. Um, and this whole hard, tough, carrying the message, life or death, that's all what we, what we need in a way. The last thing I want to talk about, and I'll talk about it only very, very briefly. In the first 10 or 15 years, AA made a lot of mistakes. And Bill looked at those mistakes and developed the 12 traditions, which we have incorporated. And the important thing of understanding those uh, is that they all emphasize humility, the lack of individual control, 
the lack of reward, the lack of prestige, and the need to work in unity and to be guided by a sense beyond yourself of a higher power, a group conscious. Um, and, and these are, and the other side of it is that these are traditions and not rules, that they were concepts that were developed as a result of the mistakes and the, and the sort of the self-assessment that AA was doing over those first 10 or 15 years. You can't break a rule. You can break a rule, but you can't break a tradition because a tradition is not a rule. It's a tradition. It's something, it is developed out of experience, and it is a guide to action. And, um, you know, I've often talked in, in my big book studies about being a, a member of that secret organization in a way called the Traditions Police. Uh, you know, we're, we're that group that says, you can't do that, that's against Tradition 3.7.2, you know. I don't do that anymore. I look at traditions as being guides, and I don't assume that my interpretation of a particular tradition is so accurate that I'm right and the other person is wrong. I look at it, I examine it, and frankly, I look at everything in light of Traditions 5. Traditions 5 says that the primary purpose of every OA group uh, is the uh, is carrying the message to those who still suffer. And that, to me, is the guide for any other question as to whether tradition has been breached. Does this action help or hinder carrying the message to those who still suffer? So I think I've spoken for approximately an hour. That's very long. Uh, I hope I've helped in some way provide a, a sense of the history of AA and its relevance uh, to OA. And I think this is a good point for me to stop. And uh, I'm here, uh, uh, Leah, for as long as you, as you need me. Well, by 9.30, I'm finished. But, uh, or 10.30, your time. But I'm, I'm sure it'll be finished before then. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lori, for your thorough and captivating presentation this morning. So fascinating. Thank you very, very much. Lori's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. And, yes, we'll transition to questions now. So you can press star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Hi, this is Vinga P. in Minnesota. Vinga, one moment. Anyone else? <clears throat> Sharon from Valerie New York. Sharon. Valerie B. from Maryland. Valerie B. Okay, let's start with that. And if everybody could mute unless you're speaking, thank you so much. Vinga P., go right ahead. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank you, Laurie, for speaking. Um, the the um I really enjoyed was right at the edge of my seat. It was very, very good to hear you um all that you shared this morning. Um I wanted to ask I thought you said that um <clears throat> Dr. Silkworth gave us the problem, Dr. Young the solution, and did you say the steps and traditions from the Oxford group? That's and okay. then the other just, just the, the steps. steps. The traditions okay. were derived, were brilliantly derived by Bill ten or fifteen by years Bill. into the program. Yeah. And then the other thing I was wondering, um, I always thought that um, <clears throat> um, Hazard uh, was um, one of the third or fourth people who were recovered, but I actually he brought the message to Evie, you're saying. 
That, oh, that, there's no question about that. He, uh, I oh, mean, I'm not okay. saying that other people hadn't recovered from alcoholism before, but Roland mm-hmm. was never a member of the of AA. Roland oh. died with a, a sober, as I, as I understand it, but he, I don't think he ever joined AA. He just kept within the Oxford groups. Hmm. So he, he recovered uh, 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 two or three years, uh, uh, two or three years before he brought the message to Ebby, who brought the message to Bill. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Zinga. Sharon. Good morning, everyone. Um, Laurie, um, I just came on board about two and a half minutes ago, and I heard your voice, and I was wondering if um, this is not a so-called recovery question. It kind of is. Um, Are you the same, Laurie, Who's from Manitoba? No, I'm from Winnipeg. Yeah, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yeah. Winnipeg. Okay. Because I have CDs that I listen to almost daily um, of yours, having to do with um, a workshop that you did, um, and I was just wondering, based on that. Do you have any, um, um, is there any possibility that you're going to be doing workshops on the East Coast? Uh, Leah, do, do you, you mind? Do I, that? I can ask. Hmm? You, go ahead, Thanks. Lori. I'm, I'm doing one in, in two weeks' time in, uh, uh, well, near, near Cincinnati. Uh, oh, and near Ohio. It's yeah, it's near Cincinnati. Near it's in Kentucky actually, but it's near Cincinnati. I'm doing one in Minneapolis. I'm doing one in Los Angeles, East Coast. Um, no, that's it. That's it so far. That's okay. East, East Coast. I'm doing yeah. Okay. Sharon, we'll give you some contact information at the conclusion of this recording, and you'll find be, out more information at that time. Question. Excellent. Thank, you, so thank you, Sharon. Thank, thank you. you, everyone, for your service. Welcome and thank you. Okay, Valerie B., your turn. Um, my question uh, is about, could you could you talk and explain a little bit more about the Oxford group and, you know, what they, like, what they were and what they're, you know, and all that kind of stuff? Well, I, I can uh, a little bit more than I have, but but not much more. I've read I've read some books about them, but what I remember, I'm not so sure that that uh, every that I'll rem- well, I won't remember everything anyway. But I mean, it, it, they, excuse they me were... one second, Lori. I'm so sorry, Valerie. If you could please mute, because there's a lot of noise. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Lori. Um, I mean, they were they were developed around uh, uh, Dr. Frank Buckman, who was as, as I said a Presbyterian minister. Who had developed these uh, on a personal level had developed these concepts of uh, the inventory, uh, uh, self-assessment, uh, c- uh, confession, and, and restitution, uh, prayer and meditation uh, for direction, uh, for for doing things, and then um, helping others with a hope of reward, property, or prestige. And these concepts uh, were used. They, it became quite a movement um, uh, in in. Uh, well, all over the all over the world, but certainly in the United States, where uh, these 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 uh, people would uh, would come into towns, getting a lot of publicity, inviting a lot of business people and uh, ministers and 
I mean, the Catholics didn't like them, but the, the but a lot of the Protestant ministers liked them. They were they were Christians, and they called themselves first century Christians. They wanted to bring back the passion for Christ that they considered the first century Christians had, and um, they they would have uh, uh, these uh, these uh, meetings where they would. Large. I mean, they came to Akron, Ohio. There's a picture you can get in a newspaper of uh, of a newspaper clipping of, of of the meeting of 400 people uh, uh, in 1937. I want to say, um, where they they would explain what they were doing, and they would get people who would who would uh, develop groups uh, that would strengthen the churches that already existed. They they did not try to create their own church. They were trying to reinvigorate the Protestant churches that already existed. So there were a lot of Oxford groups uh, that met separately in order to reinvigorate the, the, their various uh, churches that they were members of. Um, and they became quite popular, and, and they, they, they still have their popularity. Um, they waxed and waned. And they, they, they called themselves moral rearmament because I think Oxford University asked them to stop, and also because the, there's a... It's not the Oxford groups, it's the Oxford movement within the Catholic Church, I think, asked them to stop as well. Um, and uh, as moral rearmament, they, they, they got more involved in political activities, uh, which I think uh, harmed their ability to, to carry a more spiritual method. That's my understanding. But, um, you know, Dr. Bob, for instance, in Akron, Ohio, was a member of groups. Uh, there was a, I don't know how many people, there were 10, 15, 20, 30 people who, uh, who would meet quite regularly. They would continue to do self-assessments. They'd pray for each other. They'd help hear each other's confessions uh, for many, uh, for a number of years until the big book was, uh, was uh, uh, printed. Uh, they were the, the Oxford groups were where the alcoholics went. And there were sort of the drunk, the drunk groups of the Oxford groups. Uh, the Oxford groups began to sort of resent the, the drunks because they smoked a lot and they drank a lot of coffee and there were cigarette burns on their on their uh, on their on their fancy rugs because it, it was quite a. I would say it's fair to say that in Akron there was a more of an elitist concept of the Oxford groups. Uh, more wealthy people were members than not. Um, so and, and finally there was this ultimate split where where AA sort of went on its own and it started first in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, uh, with Clarence, and then uh, spread to Akron, and then to and then to New York. And with the publication of the big book uh, in 1939, it, 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 the AA became a fellowship named after the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and and basically was not associated with the Oxford groups from that time. Uh, shortly from that time, shortly after. Uh, I, I hope that helps. Uh, I mean, but they, they still did. I mean, there's all this praying and praying over people and, and looking for guidance and acting on intuition. It, and they had four absolutes. I can never remember them all. Absolute love, absolute honesty. Um, can't remember the other two, but uh, they were they were very strong, and, 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 and we owe a lot to them. So I hope that helps. Thank you, Valerie, for your question. Who else yeah, has a question? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sima. Yeah. Marla. Carla? Marla with an M. Marla with an M. Who else? Penny C. Penny C. Okay, if everyone could mute except for Sima. Hi, uh, Laurie. Thank you you're, so much. You're the Sima I know, aren't you? I don't know. What do you you're know me? Oh, you're not, oh, you're not no, the Sima. Oh, I'm not the Sima from Israel. No, oh, okay. I'm the okay. Sima Sorry. from New Jersey. Okay. Hi, Sima. 
but I know the Sima from Israel. Um, okay. I was, I didn't hear the beginning, but I came in and you were talking about the traditions not being rules, and I guess this is something that I've been experiencing lately at a, at an in-person meeting where they use non, uh, they they use they hazeled in literature as for discussions during meetings, and it bothers me because I don't like the book, and also because I feel like, oh, it's not conference-approved literature, and or things like that, um, or the group doesn't do a treasury report, or, um, you know, a seven, well, they, they have a seven tradition, but they don't uh, report on sending money to the other, uh, you know, um, umbrellas of the program, and just things like that. Um, and I was, and for my um, curiosity, when you said that they're not really rules, they're they're written to be guidelines, but not enforced as rules. And um, so it's kind of like a gentleman's agreement kind of thing, where this is well, what we're going to do. But if we don't do that, then we're okay. Or so anyway, well, let, I just wanted you to yeah, talk more about that. Thank you. Sure, and and let's let's be clear. I mean, no one could kick anyone out of OA. Right. I mean, we're members. If we say we're members, that's what tradition three is. If we say we have a desire to stop eating compulsively, then we're members. Uh, so no one, there, there is no way of disciplining anyone, and therefore they aren't rules. Uh, uh, you know, rules are you could kick people out. Well, you can't kick people out. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, um, I mean, just by definition, they're not rules. Uh, secondly, um, uh, the. You know, what you're describing, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll accept your description. I, I, I always like to do my own investigation, but let's ex- accept for the moment the description that you provided um, of using uh, non-conference-approved literature and all that. There, there's no tradition that actually says that other than, uh, A, we take no position outside issues, and there's an, uh, there's an argument that, that literature that isn't conference-approved is outside issues. I, I don't think that that's a, necessarily a strong argument because there's a lot of recovery literature that is right on point and is not an outside issue, but that's another issue. That's another thing. And also that um, uh, we are autonomous except in matters affecting other groups and OA as a whole. That uh, tradition, what is it for? And that tradition is, is a really concerning one because if, in fact, you use literature that is really not dealing with the steps, that is not doing anything with respect to the steps, if you, uh, if you are doing things that give the impression that OA is not a step-oriented fellowship, a 12-step fellowship, then you're harming OA as a whole. And, uh, and I think that's a really serious issue. But the, to, to the traditions are there to develop guidelines and to develop sort of good tests of whether or not what is going on in any meeting is helping or hindering uh, OA as a whole, whether it's helping or hindering those who still suffer. And it provides a good test. You know that there are there are ways of uh, of, of uh, uh, dealing with that, but the traditions are themselves just traditions. And I'll give you one example, and this is from AA Comes of Age. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this. I'm not sure I have this exactly accurate. It's something like this: uh, AA is spreading into Japan, and someone writes from Japan and says, "We have a major crisis here. There are two AAs. Uh, one AA has the 12 steps and doesn't charge anything, and the other AA." has, I don't remember, say, 10 steps and charges 7 yen a meeting. What do we do? And, and the central office uh, at that time, the general service office, uh, thinks about it and sends back saying, well, uh, 
God will tell us which is right, or maybe both are right, or don't do anything. Uh, just do what what you have to do, um, and and don't don't try and take any sort of action. Uh, just do what you're doing, which I assume is the twelve step method, and and that whole sense that ultimately, if we do what we do right, other things will take care of themselves. Uh, generally is, is a good attitude. That's what the whole humility aspect is about that, that is found in the, in the guts of the tradition. If I work my program well, then maybe, just maybe, I can find the right words and find the right way to talk to other people about things that concern me. And my answer to anyone who has a concern about a particular meeting, it's the answer I use myself because I, I have concerns about some meetings, is to do what I call a step 10 of them, and, and that's the equivalent of steps 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. I use the, the, the big book method. I write them down as resentments. Um, this meeting is going badly, or I'm, I'm worried about this meeting. I will write down some of the people at the meeting who might bother me as well as individuals. Um, I will work through the resentments. Uh, why does this bother me? How does it affect me? Uh, where is my fault? Where am I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? I'll very often find I want to control it. I want to make it perfect. I want this to be the right thing. And then uh, there's fear involved. I'll deal with the fears. Now I'll ask my higher power what my higher power would have me be in relation to those fears. And then I get a sense of what amends do I owe to this group. And sometimes the amends I owe to this group might very well be that I'm trying to control this group in a way that it doesn't want to be controlled or that I'm continuing to go to this meeting and it should die or that I'm not raising the issues. I'm just letting them fester within me and I'm not raising them in a way that other people can hear. I mean, I don't have any answers, but I'm just saying that that's how I treat it. Um, and I think the traditions provide us with that same, they ought to provide us with humility and not with the sense of we know better than them. You, you know what I mean? Like, like it's this whole concept of, yes, the traditions are there and they certainly should guide me in how I act towards others and how I act within this group. And let me think about this. Let me figure out what's going on, and let's see what I can contribute. Um, but they're often, as, as a member of the traditions police, I used to use them as a way of controlling my interpretation of what should be going on in this particular meeting, and I think that is a very dangerous thing. It leads to the same problems of what those people might be doing in the meeting that you described. So, Thank sure, you I so have to, much. That is so useful. Have a great day. Same to you. Thank you, Sima. Marla, your turn. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much Hi. for what you had to say today. Um, I've been to a couple of your um, presentations or listened to them online uh, on recordings and stuff. My question is, I know a lot of times when I hear you speak, it's you stress the importance of identifying that we are recovered, ED, past tense. Um, and you've pointed out in the book, book the places where that appears. And I identify uh, myself as a recovered compulsive overeater, and I know we do on vision phone line too. Um, when I go to my face-to-face -face meetings, however, I am typically the only person that does that, and I know there are many people that are recovered uh, that that are at those meetings as well that, that don't identify. How important do you think that is when we're talking at our face-to-face -face groups or to other people to use that in describing ourselves? Do you think that has a lot to do with carrying the message the right way? I don't even know if alcoholics are doing that. Or is it just kind of a concept that we use? Is it really important that we identify that way when we're speaking 
or not? What are your thoughts on that? That's a really good question um, because I, I, I've thought about it, and I don't have, I don't have an answer. I, I never like to argue about the meaning of words. Um, that comes from my background in English and philosophy because people use words in different ways, and they often mean different things to different people. You know, I, I used to argue about the word forgive uh, in, in a way until I began to realize that people have very different definitions of the uh, use of the word forgive. So I, I use descriptions rather than the actual word. Um, so although the concept of recovered, I think, is essential, it, it, it is the concept of I am different from what I used to be. I now can be around foods that used to bother me, that used to beckon to me and not want them. I mean, that description describes something that is a miracle to the compulsive eater who still suffers, and means nothing to anyone else. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to my wife, for instance, but it sure means a lot to people in my home group. Uh, for me to say it's been over 23 years that I can have ice cream in the, in the freezer and not want it. Well, it means nothing to my wife because she doesn't like ice cream. But it means a lot to me and it means a lot to other people because they know that they know the feeling, especially if they haven't recovered, they know the feeling of, of this, this little hand reaching out from the freezer saying, come to me, come to me, you know. So... Mm-hmm. Being able to be over 23 years not wanting this stuff and watching other people uh, eat it or indulge in it is, is an amazing miracle. So I think that miracle is absolutely essential to talk about. Some people turn off on particular words. And I don't like to turn people off by using words that bother them, even though I know it shouldn't bother them. You know? So... I, I, I look for different words. So I, I, frankly, I don't introduce myself as I'm Laurie, I'm a recovered compulsive eater. I talk about my recovery, but I never use the word recovered unless I'm in a big book study when I use it as a, as a sort of a talisman, a, a concept that, that's important to, to, to talk about. I have a very good friend, uh, Charles from Atlanta, who says, I'm Charles recovered but not cured compulsive okay. eater. And that fits the the big book definition, uh, uh, because the, the big book says we are not cured. What we have is a daily reprieve uh, contingent on, on the maintenance of our spiritual um, uh, condition. And, and that, um, that uh, is, is, is a powerful way of putting it, I think. I, I just don't, I mean, people, there are people in OA who, who make statements by I am so-and-so. You know, I'm a food addict, I'm a volume addict, I'm a witch, I'm this or that. And, and it all makes sense in the meeting for them. You, you, you know, for me, I choose not to use, I choose to use the traditional words without adding anything. But I do talk, probably some would say endlessly and boringly, about uh-huh. the miracle of my recovery. Because for me, that is essential. And what, but when I do big book studies, I use the word recovered because I'm trying to make a point there. You know that that we are different, and that we have to have to um, um, try, uh, trumpet that difference from what we used to be, because that's the miracle, that's the joy, that's what we have now that we didn't have then, and that's what we have to offer to those who still suffer. We don't just offer comfort; we offer a miracle to them. If they are like us, that's a miracle. The ability to be around foods and not want them, the ability to watch other people indulge in the things that used to beckon to us and not think of them and be happy for them and not want them, that's something that we should be defining ourselves as in some way, shape, or form so that people can measure their own sense of recovery. Because if they don't have what we have, they ought to do the steps that will give it to them. Because that is the miracle that's promised by these steps. That's the sanity that is promised in step 
and that is the ultimate result of step uh, in, in, that is uh, promised in step 12 and is the result described in step 2. I hope that Thank helps. you, Lloyd. That's very helpful. Thank you, Marla. Penny C. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, I had the, the uh, pleasure and privilege to be with uh, you at a weekend retreat yeah. you did in Framingham, Massachusetts a couple yeah. of years ago. My question is, and, and, and thank you. I just so got so much from that. But uh, my question is regarding what you said about some even teachers of the big book use the big book differently. And I've heard you say that before, and I'm not quite clear on on um, how you mean that or what you mean by that. Uh, I wonder if you could explain a little bit more. I'll give some examples. Uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I did step four at the Vision for You convention. I, I described... Um, the method of doing it straight from the big book that, that I was taught by an AA guy in my hometown and using forms that he developed that, that, uh, that I have used and, and have uh, suggested for others. I think they're a pretty great interpretation, a pretty great version of, of what the big book does, and I, it, they come from a very careful word-by-word analysis of the big book's description of step four. I was doing this, and in front of me was... Um, one of the two other presenters of this big book study, uh, she was sort of sitting, I was up in a podium, and the presenters were up in a podium, then there were people in the audience, and, and she was in the audience, and I was looking at her while I was describing that, and I had heard her big book studies, and her method of doing step four was different, and, and as I described at a certain point, uh, you know, I could see her at times doing what I was doing when she was talking, was like, yeah, not quite, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, some people will spend more time on step six and seven than I was taught to do. And uh, some people will bring in concepts, as Joe and Charlie do from the AA 12 and 12, uh, for step four that I don't do. Um, so, uh, you know, there are just, there are, it's easy to interpret the big book in different ways, in slightly different ways. So, for instance, I, uh, for me, six and seven follow right to from step five. And follow and flow right into step eight, and that you do them all in the same same night or within the same day. Uh, I think uh, that Harlan and Ruth, for instance, might might might, might say, "Ah, oh, you better spend a little bit more time on step six and seven than that." So I'm just giving you an example, um, and it's all based on our own experience and how we sponsor and how we've watched other people recover too. So regardless of how much we each might consider ourselves to be big book thumpers and and all that. Um, I think there's a lot of humility that each of us, I certainly, I know I have to uh, develop, um, I, I won't speak for anyone else, I have to develop, and sort of saying, well, this is the way I do it, and it certainly worked for me, but there are other people who do it other ways, and, and um, they, are, they are very spiritual people, and in many ways more spiritual than I, uh, so who am I to say that my way is the right way? So that's, that's, uh, that's all I mean. Uh, and so there are different interpretations and different ways of doing the steps. I mean, I've listened to countless AA big book studies um, and attended a few, and, and um, uh, you know, by Roger and by Joe and Charlie, the two Joes and Charlie, the two uh, Joes and one Charlie, by, uh, oh, I can't remember all their names, uh, 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 many of them, and all of them are big book studies, and all of them do the steps, discuss the steps in slightly different ways. 
Um, and, and there are many big book studies available online that have many different ways of doing step four. So who am I to say that the way I've been taught is the right way? You know, the fact that I happen to think it's closer to the big book than anyone else's, well, I could be very wrong. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, thank you. And I just wanted to add that I haven't come to telephone meetings where we're hearing from people from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, I'm beginning to realize that different regions of the country seem to have grown up on a different way to do step four. Absolutely. And, yeah, thank you so much. I understand. Yeah, and I do want to say, uh, you know, just to finish that up, you know, if you look at how Dr. Bob did step four, and you look at the way that it was sort of picked up by the back-to-basics movement within AA and I gather also in OA, it is a very direct way that was done by a charismatic personality who was able to say to a person, you've been this, this, and this in your life, haven't you? Yes, Dr. Bob, um, tell me how you've been this way. Well, you know, these are character defects. There are 20 of them that I think there are 10 or 15 or 20 that are listed. Tell me how you've been selfish. Tell me how you've, you know, you, you, you've been jealous. Tell me how you cheated on your wife or, or whatever. And this was very powerful. And the first time I did step four, my first sponsor only talked about the first three uh, columns in step four in the big book that, that are shown on, I forgot what page number in the big book. But the step five I did with him was much longer, and he drew out all the things that I, that I now, the way I sponsor using the, the method I've been taught, that I believe come out in step four but not in, and aren't needed to come out in step five because they came out in step four the way I've been taught. But the way he did it with me, those things came out in step five. Big deal. However they came out, by the end of my step five with him, I was aware of my character defects. And I had many more character defects than, than uh, when we went through with him my first time than I now do when I sponsor. When I sponsor, I have four character defects that listed in the big book, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. That's it. And I use those to encompass all the other character defects. Other people have 25 character defects that they use to encompass. Big deal. As long as at the end of the day, the test from the big book is, are you delighted? Can you look the world in the eye? Can you be alone at perfect peace and ease and have your fears fallen from you? If you feel that, who cares how you got there as long as you feel that? The main advantage of the big book way is you, a lot of it is done on your own, and you can do it without the help of another person, and you can do it quickly and powerfully. That's a wonderful advantage. Some other methods of step four take much longer and can make you feel despondent, and, and you can relapse a lot faster than if you do it the, the way I've been taught. But I, you know, if, if, if however you do it, uh, the steps work. Thank you. Thanks, Penny. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Florence in Virginia. Is that Gladys? Hello? Yes. Gladys. Gladys, one moment, please. Is that Florence, the per first yes. person? Okay, Florence, Gladys, anyone else? Stacy K. Stacy. Okay, let's go with that. Florence, go ahead. Everybody else, please mute. Thanks. Hi, thank you so much for the presentation. I turned in, in very late, but I really think this is, a, a for me, a divine appointment because I, I haven't been on the call in a long time, and 
my schedule is such that I, I just said, you know, I've got to listen today, and I'll, I know we do recording, so I'll go back. And um, I, 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 I'm really, um, I struggle with non-belonging. Uh, I'm affiliated with a number of 12-step programs. I never set, met a 12-step program I didn't like. But I, I feel like I, I can never get in the center of the pack. And um, when, when you mentioned that you're going to be talking in Cincinnati, I live in Virginia, I'm thinking, well, I'll go out to Cincinnati to get it. Like, like if I could just, if I can just put enough effort into this thing, you know, I'll get it and you'll love me and, you know, I have to, have to do, have to do what I have to do. I'm not sure quite what I'm asking here, um, except that, um, well, I don't understand the fourth column uh, in the big book as I look at it right now. And I'm stuck on step four. So if the theme of this was step four, I'm going to fall out of my chair when I go back and listen to it. I'm stuck on step four. And um, I I have a hard time with trying to get it right. Like, um, I don't know for unity of purpose if we don't mention other programs, but there are other food programs that I've been with, and I feel like if I don't do it one way, I'll get it. I won't get it. And you actually just kind of slayed that by saying, you know, as long as you get there. But I guess my fear, and I'm not even sure how to say your name. I think it's Lori. Is that is it? I'm yeah, never going to get. Yeah, I'm never going to get there. And 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 I'm not as smart as you. Although I, I'm smart enough for all normal purposes, you know. It's like like I I, I just won't get there. And um, so, that's it. Sorry. Thank you for letting me share. <laughs> okay. I'd be very happy to correspond with you using the methods. We'll give contact information at the end. I think to discuss sort of – I'll discuss in general what you said, but I, I, you know, in terms of your own recovery, I'd be very happy to, to discuss it with you. Um, but oh, thank you. Okay, so you'll get the contact information at the end. But my own, my own sense is that um, – uh, people who uh, it, 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 it's always hard to find um, the entree, the, the 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 entrance into OA. It has to be grounded in desperation and it has to be grounded in hope, and and sometimes that's hard for both to be found, uh, and 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 the desperation uh, uh, has to come from a sense of reaching a bottom and. And I think the big book provides a description of the problem that allows us to reach our bottom faster than than, than others. And the uh-huh. hope has to come from hearing within OA this sense of the miracle. Um, and uh, sometimes we don't hear that in some of the meetings uh, we go to, um, whether from the individuals or from the from the literature uh, 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 or or from the sort of the the stuff that we that we study. So I, I mean I I hope that I hope that we can find a, a I don't know how to, how to put it but but I hope you can feel part of it that's all okay so okay thank contact you. me afterwards and just remind me that you were the one who said what you said I I'm very bad with names okay Laurie thank you so much okay thank you Florence Gladys uh, good morning Leah. um I came on, my name is Gladys F. I came on like midway of the lead and I heard the speaker mention about, uh, you know, working with someone like too long, maybe when they're not making progress. And my question is, uh, how, how do you measure that or how do you decide that? Because I know there have been times, um, uh, through my journey where I've had sponsors 
who you know, have dropped me and it was like really a devastating effect on me because it, it wasn't that I was like leeching or anything. I just was, you know, I believe just that sick, you know. So how do you? I'm so glad you raised Thank you. I'm I'm so glad you raised that because I, I I can tell you I have never fired a sponsee, never. Uh, I've never dropped a sponsee, but they dropped me. Um, and and so yes, I I I personally. Uh, understand the devastation that some people feel have felt that they've talked to me about when when their sponsor has said, you know, leave. And I, I don't set up any rules uh, for sponsees or anything of that sort. Um, but that, that my method of sponsoring is very hands-off. And, and so it's consistent with what I said is that I don't let them become dependent upon me. I don't require them to talk to me at any particular time. I let them keep track of their own recovery and their own passage through the steps. When they're ready to talk with me, they phone me. I meet them face-to-face. I, I, I've had real difficulties in long-distance uh, sponsoring. But in my face-to-face sponsoring, I meet with people. And if they don't, want, if they don't meet with me, they don't meet with me. Uh, if they keep on relapsing after meeting with me all the time, I sit down with them and I say, what, what, what do you want from me? You know, because all I can do is give you the message of recovery and the method of recovery that I've derived from the big book. That's my experience. That's my strength. That's my hope. If that's what you want from me, I'm here for you 24 hours a day. If that's not what you want from me, if you want me to hold your hand, I'm not a hand holder. Do you want me to hug you? I'm not a hugger. Do you want me to listen to you whine? I'm not a, I don't listen to whine. I will tell you, if something's bothering you, that should go in your step four, five, six, seven, eight, and 9, because that's the only way you'll get your guidance. You won't get it from me. You'll get it from your God, not from me. So my method of sponsoring is consistent with this concept of not enabling anyone, because I give them nothing other than the experience, strength, and hope that I've been given through the 12 steps. Uh, but I never fire them, and I never drop them. And, and in answer to your specific question, how do I know if they're using me? Um, well, I, I, I'll give you, I'll just say one thing. I have a friend right now who is not a member of, a, of OA, uh, but has uh, two other major addictions and is now on the streets, very sadly on the streets. Um, and this person, um, I have carefully measured what, what we have done for him, my wife and I have done for him. And the least bit of help we've tried to give him, and the minimum amount, taking him to a detox center even, or take him to a crisis center, um, has been too enabling for him. And I've come to the conclusion that he's getting absolutely no help from us, uh, and my wife agrees, no help from us. If he's going to go to a detox center, he's going to have to crawl there, because somehow, when things get too difficult for him, it's getting cold in in my hometown, uh, when things get too difficult, he looks for someone to give him momentary relief, but will never commit himself to the only thing that will ever give him uh, recovery, which is which is the twelve steps, at least in my in my opinion. Um, and and sadly, his his despair is going to have to come internally. And I I can only hope and pray that before he does some horrible things to his body uh, that that debilitate him, I can only hope and pray that he will one day wake up and have that sudden spiritual experience that some people have described in in the big book. That sudden moment of saying, "Where the hell am I? What have I done?" I have no hope. Is there any hope? And suddenly, I hope he'll see a white light. So that's my answer. I never fire sponsees. Uh, but what I have done with this person, 
is I, he's on my step 10, my step 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. I put him down as a resentment. I work things out, and I try to figure out where am I being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened in relation to him, and I work out what my higher power would have me be in relation to him, in relation to my fears, in relation to my wish to control him, and to give him all the benefit of all my knowledge and experience, which ain't helping in the least, not helping at all, and I, I work that out. So my answer to the general question is, how do I know X? Is I work it out by doing steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Since I've recovered, I call that step 10. Other pe- people call it steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, but it's exactly the same process. It is really working out my relationship to things that are going on around me and figuring out how I can lose my control, my wish to control it, and allow events to take their course and be as helpful as I can be without hurting other people. I hope that helps. Yes, it did. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gladys. And Stacy, your turn. Everybody else, please mute. Thank you. Hi, Leah. This is Stacy Kay. You called me? Yes. Oh, thank you. Um, Laurie, I just... I have a question about the allergy of the body and how, you know, alcoholism, it's, it's just the substance, gambling, it's the behavior. And most people, it seems like in OA, um, you know, have both. But I'll, I've also heard of some that just believe that it's behavior. And I was wondering when you sponsor people, if they haven't identified any substances or aren't there, maybe they're not being honest with themselves or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Do you still, like, if they admit to being powerless over the behavior, will you still take them through the steps? Um, after I, yeah, I, after I examine them carefully and ask all the questions, I will take anyone through the steps. Well, not anyone. I, I tell you, I have trouble with long-distance sponsoring, but I take people through the steps. I don't take them through the steps. I tell them what I've been taught, and I help them understand it. Uh, I will help people work through the steps if they self-define their own plan of eating. They have to develop a plan of eating that defines their abstinence. Um, but if they decide it's only eating behaviors, I say, let's see how it works. I mean, the only way they'll discover is if they eliminate everything that they say causes them problems and see if they still have problems. Uh, that happened with me. I mean, I had the reverse. I knew the foods and the food ingredients. But I didn't think of any eating behaviors. And my eating, I have two eating behaviors that contributed to tremendous volume. Uh, and they were the equivalent of, uh, I guess, a volume addiction. I, uh, this need to chew and suck all the time created sort of a feeling of hunger that caused me to eat healthy food in greater quantities than I needed. And I, also this need to feel full right up to the top of my neck um, uh, created volume issues as well. And I had to find ways to limit my volume and to limit the number of times in a day that I would eat, that I would um, uh, uh, chew and suck because I had these oral needs. So I went at it from the reverse. I had the foods and food ingredients, but I didn't have the eating behaviors nailed. But I worked through the steps. I was abstinent from those things that I had truly and honestly identified as my trigger foods, and I had no idea about eating behaviors. So once I eliminated those, I worked the steps, I recovered, I was then in a position to do a further analysis because I hadn't lost any weight. And I then began to understand about eating behaviors. And over the years, I've discovered other substances. I've discussed this often enough, but I discovered that 
that foods that taste like ice cream, even if they're completely healthy, uh, like, like uh, blended frozen blueberries and Greek yogurt uh, that taste just like ice cream, I can't eat. I can eat frozen blueberries and yogurt, but I, uh, Greek yogurt, uh, skim milk yogurt, but I can't eat blended together as ice cream because it makes me feel like ice cream. And, and there's this eating behavior of the creamy, rich creaminess that causes me to overeat it and, and causes me cravings. So I've eliminated, I eliminated hot air popcorn, even though it's in, in abstract, a very healthy, fiber-filled, low-calorie, uh, relatively fat-free dish. Um, but I can't eat it, even as part of my regular meals. So for me, um, eating behaviors uh, might be the problem. I, I open the possibility that it might simply be a volume addiction and no foods that trigger it. I have my serious doubts, concerns. I'm skeptical, not cynical, though, but I'm skeptical. So I'll ask my sponsees to explain it. I'll ask them to talk about their binges. I will say... Just as I say with people who say sugar is my problem, I say, what is it with sugar? And when they say it's cakes, it's desserts, it's ice cream, I say, you realize that fat's another ingredient. And I sort of force them to look at the fat issue. I don't say it's a fat issue. I force them to look at it so that they can be honest with themselves about whether it's sugar and fat and salt and fat or, or just sugar. In the same way, I'll challenge them to talk about, well, have you noticed that your volume addiction is, all, is only with fast foods or is only with this kind of foods or, or something of that sort? But if they honestly say, after looking at it themselves, no, my only problem is eating the following three eating behaviors, eating at night, eating in large quantities, and I don't know what else, and I plan to abstain from eating in large quantities by measuring, weighing and measuring my food. I plan to abstain from eating for, at night after uh, 7 at night. I plan not to eat uh, while I watch TV, and I plan not to eat while reading. But I will eat anything, uh, but I, won't, I will eat moderately. And if that works for them, God bless them. They're not like me, but God bless them. Who am I to say that they're wrong? And our co-founder and the first man in OA, uh, AG, both counted calories. Uh, and it worked for them. They were absent for years doing that. Um, now, I, I happen to think that they never ate crap, pardon my expression. But, um, uh, but they might have. I don't know. Maybe someday they had a piece of cake and counted that in their calories. I don't know. I'm not, I don't judge them. And so I, I say that's my answer. Who knows? Thank you, Stacy, for the question. All right, final invitation for questions this morning. Star one to unmute if you have a question for Lori. Hillary D. Hillary D. Did Hello. I hear? Uh, yes. Who else did I hear? Lorraine. Lorraine. Anyone else? Francis. I didn't catch that name. Francis. Francis. Okay. Let's stop there. Thank you. Hillary, I believe it was. Yep. Um, thank you so much for your share this morning. I really did get a lot out of it. And I wasn't on the call from the very beginning, but since I jumped on, I um, got so much out. And I just had a quick question. I don't even know if this is something that really could be answered, but um, I've been in program for a little more than a year now, and I feel like I've been, like, trying to grasp onto everything that everyone's told me, like, do the steps this way, and I would try it. And um, 
I've tried going through them like two or three different ways now. And I feel like no matter what I do, like I'm just hitting that wall of desperation every single time. And um, I feel like, like I'll be actively doing the steps when I'll still like slip up or have like these five day binges and it just keeps happening in like this vicious cycle. And I don't know if there's something like key that you usually realize that people are missing or um, I guess I'm just frustrated and I don't know what else to do just because I feel like every time like I'm actively doing the steps and then this happens. Okay. I'll tell you what I, what I suggest to sponsees who experience that. I always say to sponsees that I think that they have to develop three plans before they start to work the steps. The first plan is a plan of eating that eliminates every food, food ingredient, and eating behaviors that they identify as causing these uncontrollable cravings. That's the abstinence. Uh, they have to define their own abstinence, and they have to be absolutely honest with themselves. Secondly, they should develop a plan, a strategy, a timeline for working the steps. That may sometimes even mean that they make an appointment for step five and work backwards from that, so they're really pushing themselves to work in the steps quickly before they relapse. And the third is a day-to-day strategy, a daily strategy for avoiding temptation on a day-to-day basis. What am I going to do if I'm, you know, someone offers me a cupcake? What am I going to do if at work they bring donuts? What am I going to do if I'm going to this party? How am I going to avoid this? And for that, I recommend that people develop uh, buddies. Uh, and I often will say, I mean, I'd say, don't phone me. You won't do me any good phoning me. But why don't you find someone who, um, who still suffers and help them and ask them to help you? Because you'll then be helping them and helping yourself at the oh. same time. You'll be a role model. Uh, at the same time, and I'll, I'll say, listen, to, I mean, you, you, you've got a daily meeting and a vision for you. What a, what a gift you have for that. Um, you know, you, 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 uh, it starts early enough in the morning, you begin your day with it. Uh, you listen to podcasts, you read, you'll, you'll, you drink a glass of water before you, uh, you, before you uh, take the, the, fill the, your plate the second time. I mean, whatever, whatever it takes, and you, and you work from that. Um, those three things together provide you, it seems to me, with the context in which you can now start the steps, get, a, get abstinent and start the steps. And... Um, and, and that, that, is, that is one thing. The other thing is this. There are, given the addictions model of the double whammy, you can't stop once you start and you can't stop from starting, when someone says to me, I keep relapsing, I say to those people, there are only two reasons for relapse. One is that you're still eating or indulging in a food, food ingredient, or eating behavior that continues to cause you craving so that your body is talking and you're, you're, you aren't aware of it. So let's go through your plan of eating. Let's see that you've really analyzed it carefully. And the other thing is you haven't been doing the steps or you haven't been doing the steps the right way or you haven't been doing the steps the way in which uh, uh, will give you the kind of recovery uh, because that's the obsession of the mind is then lifted when you work the steps or you haven't been doing the fast enough. So I I then will um, analyze, help them analyze. I don't do it. I help them analyze how they've done it, and to see how they can be doing it differently. So because there are only two reasons for relapse. Either your body's talking or your mind is talking. And um, never give up the idea that it might be the body. It might be that your problem, and I'm not saying that it is your problem, but it might be that your problem is that your plan of eating, you got it from someone else, it doesn't really work for you. And that you've really got to analyze your own plan of eating and not necessarily the plan of eating that was given to you. Lots of plan of eatings around where people 
are more than happy to tell you what you shouldn't be eating or, or what you should be eating. And it works for them, but it doesn't work for you. And our, our pamphlet, The Dignity of Choice, makes that very, very clear that the, the, the uh, group conscience of OA, that the plan of eating you develop should be yours and it should fit you. And someone else's plan of eating may not be the right one for you. I find that's generally one of the first problems that people have. They import someone else's plan of eating. It comes from a book. It comes from blood types. It comes from other things. And they think, this is right for me. Or it comes from someone in the program. It comes from all the various uh, sort of people who, I'm an X and X addict, you know, um, and it doesn't fit for them. So I, I find that's a very common problem, that the body is actually talking. It has nothing to do with we're trying to work the steps. You're not abstinent because you haven't abstained from your particular binge foods, as an example. So I'm just throwing those things out. I hope that helps. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you. Thank you. Lorraine, your turn. If everybody else could please mute, please, to quiet the line. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for chairing the meeting. And um, thank you, Laurie, uh, for your experience and strength and hope today. I, um, my question is this. Have you ever found where it is necessary for someone to be separated or, as described in the big book, separated by hospitalization or institutionalized? That's uh, my question. Uh, I, uh, I've known people who have had to have that happen, yes. I can well understand that some people need to be institutionalized. I, I, I'm not saying they need to be, but I'm saying it, it would have been a lot easier for them to be institutionalized, sure. Just as there are drug addicts and all that, uh, they, they develop these enormous withdrawal symptoms, which, which living in their own home, they, they, can't, um, they can't hurt a break on their own. I, I don't have an answer to that. I sadly one of the one of the I've I've the sad the, the people I've known who have died in a way because of their overeating have, have both been people in the hospitals who didn't use the opportunity being in the hospital, having controlled eating available to them, uh to to um to recover. So my, my the sadness is that the, the institutionalization didn't work for them, but I can well imagine that it would it would have worked for them if they had truly been willing to work the steps. Right. I, I have nothing else to say. I have no great experience in that respect. Thank you, Lorraine, for the question. And our final question this morning comes from Francis. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Lori, for this powerful, honest, and hopeful presentation. Um, I really appreciate it. I was distracted a couple of times, and I am not sure whether or not you spoke about the concepts. I didn't. I was. I, I thought of doing that, and and uh, just for those who there are a lot of people who don't even know what the concepts are. But the twelve concepts were developed by Bill after about uh, he wrote in the sixties. So after another ten, twelve years after he he wrote the traditions, and these are concepts that that uh, I think are really significant. We we've adopted them not quite in the same wording, and I. I sort of miss the wording in, 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 in the AA ones, but we have the 12 concepts and their methods for governing, uh, sort of for governing ourselves. And some of them are really uh, not um, uh, fully appreciated within OA, especially 
the twelfth concept, which has six subdivisions, and one of those subdivisions is that we we reach um, uh, our decision making. It says by vote or preferably by substantial unanimity, and we don't do that in a way enough. We we we're letting Robert's Rules of Procedures govern us, where it really should be this concept of substantial unanimity and consensus. And we miss, I think, through Robert's Rules of Procedures, I think we miss the the beauty of finding our higher our group conscience uh, through. And, and Bill discusses this at length in his great pamphlet, which, the great book, which is available online from AA. You can just read it, um, the, 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 um, the 12 Concepts and the General Service Manual. Uh, discusses at length as, as saying, listen, the one person in the room who disagrees might be the person we all should be listening to. That might be the voice of God. We don't, we don't do that in a way enough. Uh, our, our, our sort of traditional way of dealing with things is using Roberts, and, 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 and limiting debate and saying well, one pro, one con, one pro, one con, which I, I think we missed. So I didn't discuss the concepts. I could. I think they're brilliant. Um, uh, and I, I think that's another thing to learn from OA history. But I just decided to limit myself to sort of the issues of carrying the message and the issues of humility that the traditions provide. But thank you. Someday it's worth, dis- it's worth studying those concepts. They're absolutely brilliant. I think Bill was a very brilliant man, uh, certainly inspired. Hope that helps. Yes, thank you. Thank, thank you, Francis. Thank you very much. Of course, thank you, Lori, for your thorough and engrossing presentation this morning. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very, very much for your service. I'm going to close from page 164. Oh, do, you want my con- do you want my contact information? If you want it on the recording, otherwise, after the recording concludes. No, I'll give it on the recording if that's okay. Um, Perfect. I, I uh, phone calls are very difficult for me. I share a line. My, my wife and I have one line, so uh, you know, momentary phone calls are very difficult. I won't give my phone number, but I'll give my um, <clears throat> the website, uh, <clears throat> www.oabigbook.info, big, OA Big Book, all one word, O-A-B-I-G-B-O-O-K.info, I-N-F-O. Uh, and on there, there's a place to click where you can click for mailing me, emailing me, or my email is laurie, L-A-W-R-I-E, at oabigbook.info and I'm more than happy to correspond with people and uh, occasionally I, I, you know, I'm able to arrange sort of times when we can have phone calls or Skype calls or something like that. I'm more than happy to do that. Okay? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lori, for your service. Thanks for the Our- opportunity. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find, and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.